This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024. I'm Caleb Brown, and Happy New Year. As state lawmakers get back to work front and center in several legislatures is the cartel-style arrangement known as Certificate of Need, most notably in healthcare. Cato's Jeff Singer discusses what CON has done to American healthcare. Uh, certificate of Need laws really uh, took off in the mid-70s when the Nixon administration got a law passed that basically uh, incentivized states to set up certificate of need laws. And a certificate of need laws, for those who never heard the term before, is uh, basically in order for uh, an organization or even an individual to uh, set up a, a medical practice or open a medical facility or make additions to their facility, they'd have to go before a commission uh, that's uh, run by the state that listens to their proposal and decides whether or not the population of that state really needs something like that. Now, the iron, the idea behind it was that uh, in the mid-70s already, it was becoming an issue of rising healthcare costs due to rising healthcare utilization. So uh, the policymakers came up with this idea that if we restrict uh, the development of healthcare services, then we will have less utilization. I guess they didn't take economics 101. So to be clear, yeah. this was the explicit purpose. Yes. The purpose was, was by restricting supply, you could reduce demand. Making it harder for people to take up, make use of medical services. Correct. That will make it where people will use less medical services because the government was now uh, using taxpayer dollars to pay for a lot of these medical services, and it was starting to get expensive. So um, what ended up happening is, well, first of all, one of the things they didn't take into account was that uh, most people who were purchasing medical services had, had insurance of one form or another, whether it was government-run insurance like Medicare or Medicaid, or it was uh, commercial insurance, in which case m- most of the expense was felt by the third-party payer directly. Only indirectly did the uh, healthcare consumers pay for it. So they were relatively insulated from price. So the reduced supply, which you would think would raise the price and then reduce demand, um, really didn't work that way because the consumers didn't really feel the price. So demand continued to increase, as did prices. Because you had an increase in demand and a, re, a, a curtailment of or reduction of supply, so actually prices went up even more. So by the mid-1980s, uh, lawmakers in Washington, this is during the Reagan administration, realized that, you know what, this was a bad idea. So they repealed that. But by that time, uh, almost every state, I think every state, except for some strange reason, Louisiana, um, had enacted these certificate of need laws. and. Uh, one of the, uh, the things uh, listeners of this podcast would expect is that a lot of people were benefiting from uh, uh, these certificate need laws, particularly the entrenched incumbents who had a lot of influence on the certificate of need commissions. Uh, and they kind of liked it just the way it was. And you can imagine if you had a certificate of need law, for example, for restaurants. So, you know, um, you have this great new idea for a restaurant concept with an interesting cuisine and atmosphere, and you want to open it up. But first, you have to get approval from the certificate of need commission, which is either made up of your, your 
uh, com- the competitive, your competing restaurant owners, or if it's not made up of them, it's heavily influenced by them. And they say, well, you know, that's an interesting idea you have, but I think we have enough restaurants right now. So I don't think we'll approve it. And that's, that's what we have with in the healthcare um, sector. And extending that, uh, that analogy a little further, imagine the uh, kinds of restaurants that would have more influence in uh, that kind of determination, that kind of uh, committee. Uh, it would be probably large corporate entities. Yeah, the big and- restaurant chains. And yeah, exactly. As, so, so that's what's happened. So uh, some states, uh, shortly after the federal incentive to have certificate need laws was repealed, some states repealed them. Uh, California in, eight, uh, in 1990 repealed uh, it. Arizona, uh, my own state where I practice medicine, repealed all of its certificate of need laws, except strangely, they didn't repeal the certificate need laws for ambulance services. Uh, so that's the only certificate of need you need to receive if you want to open up an ambulance service. And we have uh, what they call ambulance deserts here in Arizona, particularly in the central, more rural parts of the state where people Sometimes I have to wait hours for an ambulance. Uh, but, you know, of course, if you wanted to sa- solve that problem by opening up an ambulance service, you'd have to get a permission from the other ambulance companies uh, who have to determine, yeah, we could use another one. Two hours is a fine wait, Jeff. <laughs> Especially when you have a crushing chest pain and can't breathe, yeah. So uh, you gave some testimony recently in my home state of Kentucky, and I, I'm not purposefully steering our conversation back to Kentucky uh, for um, uh, assuring listeners of that. It's just that it, it Kentucky is a state with pervasive con laws uh, among a lot of Southeastern states and um, the arguments for maintaining the system uh, of certificate of need almost entirely hinge on how governments do the payments for medical services that the government pays for. Yeah, uh, it was actually a really interesting back and forth I had with some of the members of the uh, Kentucky Legislative Task Force that was uh, it's a, was a bipartisan, bicameral task force addressing the certificate need issue. Kentucky has t- um, certificate need requirements in 24 different categories in healthcare, from ambulance services to birthing centers to nursing homes to hospitals, you name it. So um, they basically argued uh, with me that, well, you need to understand that in the rural parts of the state, um, the hospitals there have a very high proportion of their patients are either Medicaid patients or Medicare patients, and Medicaid and Medicare don't pay very well. And so we need, they, they were explicit about it. One of the senators that, uh, talking to me, who happens to also be a, a former CEO of a hospital, said we basically need to protect the hospitals from competition because uh, we're afraid that they can't survive economically uh, if, if, uh, if, if they have competition. And I, and I said, you know, you could use the same argument with doctors. And I don't think anybody would suggest using that argument because doctors also, uh, in, in rural areas mainly get paid by Medicaid and Medicare and Medicaid, and Medicaid don't pay doctors very as much as they used to. And that's uh, one of the reasons why many doctors are kind of, you know, closing up their practices ahead of their plans, plan schedule. They're retiring early. They're becoming employees of hospitals and fewer people are going in to the health field because of uh, the remuneration that you can get. So maybe we should 
put a freeze. I, I actually said this. Why not, maybe we should put a freeze on all new doctors entering the state of Kentucky. Uh, and only if uh, a committee made up of Kentucky doctors decides that we could use this one doctor here in this part of the state, then that, that's the only way you can get the practice in Kentucky. And of course, that, that was preposterous, and they saw it as such. But it's the same exact argument. Uh, and uh, one of the senators said, well, you need about 85% occupancy to kind of make make it economically feasible to have a hospital, and the hospitals in rural Kentucky have a 60% occupancy. So it's not a good idea to allow other hospitals there. And I countered with, well, a couple of things. First of all, that they'll decide whether or not it's economically feasible, not you. But on top of that, um, if it isn't economically feasible, then your friends who own these hospitals don't have to worry because nobody's going to come in to compete with them because it's not economically feasible. But of course, another thing that certificate of need laws do is they block alternative forms of competition. So for example, uh, let's just talk about uh, hospice care. Okay, so there are different ways people can get hospice care. You can get it through a nursing home, or you can get it through a home hospice, and there are very different. There are many alternatives, but according to research from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, states that have certificate of need laws, uh, it, they tend to have uh, the bulk of their patients receiving hospice care in nursing homes, which is a more costly way and also a less personal way of receiving hospice care. So. Uh, for example, in, in a state like Kentucky, where uh, you need a certificate of need in virtually every category of healthcare provision, maybe in some rural areas of Kentucky where a hospital will only have, let's say, 60% uh, occupancy, and that's doesn't the, the numbers don't work well for the hospital, well, maybe uh, you don't need a hospital. Maybe you need uh, alternatives like uh, ambulatory care centers or home health care. Uh, uh, options uh, as an alternative to the hospital, that, then that and they would become part of the mix. But of course, having central planning and a certificate of need law doesn't allow those kind of innovations to even kind of bubble up and and become available to people. You know, so where the other thing it does is it kind of fixes us in time, so that in in places like rural Kentucky, we're still stuck, I guess, in the nineteen seventies and eighties way of delivering healthcare. Maybe here in the, in the you know, early 21st century, there are other ways we can deliver this quality healthcare services without having to have you know, a bricks and mortar hospital do it. But certificate of need laws stand in the way of that because uh, if you have an alternative, I'm sure the entrenched incumbents aren't gonna wanna, want you to open up that alternative because it's gonna compete with their bottom line. And one of the arguments that I hear from people who defend a uh, certificate of need is that there are certain types of pieces of equipment or certain types of services that could only be offered at a hospital that, uh, like an MRI, it's a huge expensive piece of equipment. You need very highly trained staff to run it. So, uh, when you uh, uh, free the market that, uh, for healthcare services, that you take a lot of those kinds of products out of other rural areas that otherwise would have. That's an ex excellent example of, of com competition. So for example, in Arizona, like I said, where I practice, I remember, cause I was, uh, in the early days of my practice, 
And in my residency days, we had certificate of need laws. And so Phoenix had, uh, I think, two hospitals that had CT scans. CT scans were, you know, the new thing in the late 70s, early 80s. And so uh, if you had a patient who needed a CT scan, sometimes you had to transport your patient from the hospital your patient was in to a hospital across town to get the CT scan and then be brought by ambulance back to the hospital that you, that they were a patient in because that was the place where the CT scans were located because the certificate of need committee said we only need let's say two or three CT scans in the city of Phoenix. Uh, and uh, of course, when the certificate of need laws were repealed, all of a sudden we have all of these freestanding radiology centers that are not even part of hospitals. They're private uh, groups. Some of them are quite large, uh, you know, radiology practices uh, where they have MRIs and CT scanners and PET scanners and, and you name it. And you, uh, in fact, uh, one particular uh, uh, radiology uh, company in here in, in Phoenix, where we're recording this, uh, my wife needed to get a particular radiographic study, and she had five locations to choose from. And she decided to get it at a place that fit in better with her schedule for that day. Those kind of things couldn't have existed in the certificate of need law days. It's it's it. It is stunning to me that. For example, and we're going to go back to Kentucky because that's where I live. Uh, a birthing center was opened in Kentucky, and I believe the mayor was there, and I believe the lieutenant governor was there, and uh, this was a a ribbon cutting on a place that, uh, in most other states, it would not be particularly notable, or. Uh, nobody would deserve a special pat on the back for having opened a center like that because it can simply be done. It doesn't require special permission from the state. Yeah, it's kind of ironic because, you know, uh, first of all, you know, women have been having babies in their own homes since humans have existed. And, um, and actually having babies at home has uh, recent, in recent years grown in popularity. So it's, it's sort of making a comeback. Uh, and you don't need a certificate of need from the government to have your baby in your house or maybe to uh, take an Uber ride over to your mother's house to have your baby over there or to, and to have the, the, the nurse midwife meet you at your mother's house. All these things don't require government permission. They seem to be able to handle it on their own. But if you wanted to build a center where a person can go to have their baby with a professional uh, services offered, like a, a you know a nurse midwife, they have to get a certificate of need from the government to decide is necessary. Um, and by the way, birthing centers are, as as you mentioned, are gaining popularity across the country, particularly in rural areas that, uh, and in certain parts of the country, they they offer a more comfortable environment um uh, which is which is really important especially and and some some communities for example in appalachia in in the rural south uh, it's also more culturally attuned to the to the women who are giving birth in these centers uh it's more personal um and and there is some research to suggest that uh, uh women who have birth babies in their birthing centers have lower preterm delivery rates, higher birth weights, higher uh, breastfeeding rates, and lower rates of cesarean sections. Um, the, and the irony of it is that uh, you, you could 
you don't need permission from the government to, to have your baby in your house, which is less safe, but you do have to get permission from the government to have your baby in a safer birthing center. Jeff Singer is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. Once again, Happy New Year, and thank you for listening.